please remain standing as you're able. And would you join me as we um, recite together what Jesus would likely have recited uh, when he got up in the morning and when he went to bed in the evening and as he came before God's scripture. They called it the Shema. Jesus renamed it the Great Commandment. Shema Israel. Adonai Elohim. Adonai Had. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Uh, we're spending uh, January, the first four Sundays, trying to answer the question, what does God want? And last week we suggested God, who is a free God, wants a free people to freely worship God. So we continue that question with these two scriptures from Paul. The first is from Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. For we are God's handiwork, created, uh, by Jesus, created in Jesus Christ to do good works, which God has prepared beforehand for us to do. And then this is Ephesians, I mean Colossians rather, a sister book to Ephesians, chapter 3, verse 10. And Paul reminds us, we are putting on the new self as we are renewed in the knowledge of the image of our creator. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Be seated, please. One of my favorite stories from years ago came from a professor at SMU, Zan Holmes, who would often travel to churches and, and schools in different parts of the country to speak. So he flies into one particular town where he's supposed to speak and someone's supposed to pick him up at the airport. And this was back in the days when you could actually go to the gate to meet your party. And so he gets off the plane and waits at the gate, but nobody's got a sign. Nobody comes up. So after he gets tired of waiting for a while, he makes his way toward uh, the baggage area, picks up his luggage. Still nobody's come up here and he's about decided, well, I guess they've forgotten. I'll call to see who's coming after me and uh, who's going to come get me. And so as he got ready to make that phone call, suddenly a woman comes up and she's carrying a picture and she looks at the picture and looks at him, looks back at the picture, looks at him again. And finally she asks, are you Dr. Holmes? And with great relief, he says, well, yes, yes, I am. And she said, funny, but you don't look like your picture. What I want to ask this morning is, do we look like our picture? Because according to the scripture in Genesis 1:27, God made us male and female in the image of God. We are, in a sense, in a picture of God. But what does that picture look like, and do we look like that picture? The image of God is an important concept that runs all the way from Genesis all the way through the Bible. We find Jesus referencing it on a couple of occasions. On one occasion, when he's talking about marriage, he talks about uh, the image of God. And another occasion, when he's talking about paying taxes, he brings up the image of God. And then, of course, Paul brings it up uh, in the passage that we had this morning. This idea that we are to look like God. Well, what? What does that mean? What is it to be? Is it to have certain physical characteristics? Like I'm pretty clear that God is bald, but but whether God is or not, is that what it means? Or is it about hands or fingers or toes or eye color? And, and of course, it, it's none of those things. Well, is it about some level of purity or holiness? And, and I would say biblically, it doesn't seem to be about that either. And there's an interesting clue about what it means to be in the image of God. And it comes from um, this Old Testament book, Leviticus, that Jesus will quote on the Sermon on the Mount and quote again uh, in Luke. And the quote he uses is from um, Leviticus, where God tells the people, now you need to be holy because I'm holy. 
And then in the New, in the New Testament, it gets translated, Jesus saying, now you need to be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Or another time he says, you need to be holy as your Father in heaven is holy. Well, when a Westerner like me in the 21st century gets a hold of that, then I think, oh, I've, I've, got, to, I've got to clean up my act. I've, I've got to um, uh, somehow be more clean on the inside, be, be more pure, be different from other people. And I read it like that. But that's not the way they would have read it in Jesus' day. Holiness was not a matter of kind of something inside you. Holiness was, first of all, things that you did because God was inside you. Holiness was, or perfection was, a set of actions. And so the way they interpret this in the book of Leviticus was, uh, when God says, be like me, be holy like me, God says, now I do certain things and I want you to do those same things in as much as I've given you the capacity and ability in my image to do them. So I, I told some of you this, um, I think about a year ago, but what the rabbis in Jesus day talked about is that, that God did a number of things, but eight of them in particular that they found in the first two books of the Bible. And it was suggestive then that we ought to do those eight things too. And so one of the things, for example, is God sets the prisoners of uh, Egypt free. And so we ought to be about helping prisoners. Another one is that when Abraham has been circumcised, God comforts Abraham. So uh, the rabbis reasoned we ought to comfort those who are sick. Another time when Abraham loses his wife, we find that God is there comforting. And so one of the things they said is we need to comfort those who are grieving. And then uh, when uh, we see God doing other things, we pick it up as well. And in fact, my favorite one, I think I told you at that time, was this. There's a real strange passage in the Bible that can be read either way in Hebrew, apparently. But the, the passage is this. God is getting ready to tell Abraham about Sodom and Gomorrah. And God's not happy and something may have to be done about this. So one version says, so Abraham came and stood before God, which makes a lot of sense. God being king and ruler of the earth and all. I mean, if we were in front of a judge, we'd come stand in front of the judge. But there's another way to read that in Hebrew that the Jews read it is this way, which is God comes and stands in front of Abraham. And that may seem strange to us, but what they did with that is God came in a sense. Abraham came in the room and God stands up because God is honoring the 90 years that Abraham has lived to that point. And so one of their principles, which now you'll understand is fast becoming one of my favorites, is what God does is God honors old people. That's one of the things God does. So anyway, they came up with a list of eight things. Well, if you go to the Bible, what's the very first thing God did? Is God creates. And so one of the things they said is we need to be a people who are involved in creating. And I think this makes even more sense to me when we think about how do we experience God? We experience God as Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Or another way to say that is creator, redeemer, and sustainer. So one of the activities, favorite activities of God is to create. And so one of the expectations they would have believed in Jesus' day is that God expected us to be about creating things. And so Paul says this. He says, we were created to do good works. We're created by God to do some creating. Some creating uh, that brings uh, good things to the world. And, and in case we don't quite believe this, the Bible goes to great pains to point this out early on in the Bible. So, for example, when God creates... God creates the whole universe in 11 verses. Just bam. And then God calls on people in the second half of Exodus to create a tent where God can dwell. And it takes like 15 chapters. 
hundreds of verses. And so what the ancient uh, interpreters said is that this showed two things. Number one, it's easier for God to create than us. Okay, that's pretty clear. But the second thing is, it's so important for us to create that God spends a lot more time describing our creation than describing God's creation. The whole world in less than two chapters, including human beings, all the animals, everything, and then 15 chapters just to make a big tent. Because God's making the point, it is your job to create. I, I command it. I will support it. And then there's a real interesting way uh, the, that this lines out in the book of Exodus. It's, it's interesting to watch God create and then God expect us to do our part. So, for example, the people are enslaved in Egypt. And so how does God free them? God sends the plagues and then finally parts the Red Sea, collapses on the Egyptians. People are free. So it's like first time around, God says, I'll do it. But then when they get across the Red Sea and they start to get in the wilderness, this nasty group of people called the Amalekites attacks the elderly, the, uh, the nursing women and the children and tries to take them off as slaves. And God says, you've got to fight them. And you fight them and I'll help. And so you may remember the story is they fight the Amalekites and Moses goes on a mountain. And when Moses' arms are lifted, they're winning. And then when Moses' arms are sagging, they're losing. But of course they win the battle, but it's God saying the first time I'll fight for you. The second time is you fight with me. Then it comes to the Ten Commandments. First time Moses gets the Ten Commandments, God's own handwriting. God writes them out, gives them to Moses, two tablets. They would have been ten, ten on each, not five on one, five on another. Two copies of the Ten Commandments. But Moses comes down the mountain and the people are out of control. So Moses just... Throws them down as a way of saying, well, this is all shot to pieces and breaks it. And the first time God writes it, well, God forgives the people. Things come back together. Moses goes back up the mountain and God says, write these down and starts giving Moses all the commandments. First time God writes, second time God speaks, Moses writes. Final example. When they're on the mountain, God covers them with a presence called a cloud or the glory of God, the Shekinah glory of God. And, and God dwells in this presence over this mountain. But then later when they come down from the mountain and they're moving out into the wilderness, God tells them, as I've told you in 15 chapters, build me a tent. And I will be in the tent and the tent will be a covering when Moses comes in and that will be my presence will be in there. So it's like first time around, I'll do it. Second time around, you'll do it. So it's probably at the point of boring, but you see the principle. God creates and then God expects that we would join in creating. What Jewish Christian scholars call this is partnering with God. Not that we're equal partners, but that we join in. God does something and then we get to play our part in it and our part is in creation. And so God as a creator calls us to create. Create things of beauty, things that where there's darkness bring light, things that are unattractive that bring beauty, things where there's sorrow brings joy, things where there's hopelessness brings hope, where there's chaos brings order. So all sorts of creation. And, and the church sort of has a checkered history of, of participating in creation. Because early on, one of the things that the church did, strangely enough to me, is they decided that art, sculpture, maybe because they often, Greeks would sculpt the whole human body unclothed, but art, sculpture, plays, theater, all of that they deemed bad. 
And when when, uh, Turkey became Christian in the 4th century, the very first things the church did was go into an artist colony called Aphrodisias and shut it down. And they turned the theater into a church and they turned uh, a beautifully ornate palace into the place for the bishop to live. And uh, ever since then, we've kind of had this up and down. Finally, you get to the Renaissance. There are beautiful things made in the name of God. Uh, But my point is this. It was always understood in the Jewish background of Jesus that we were supposed to be creating, even if we didn't always agree on what those creations should be. Uh, The second thing is creation wasn't just about poetry or art or sculpture of some kind. It was about anything that brought beauty or justice or truth or order to or light to a darkened world. So all that was creation. And after, after a while, the church sort of got the hang of it. And the church in the 7th, in the 18th and 19th century got really busy, Methodists especially, about creating things that would make the world a better place. And, um, and so Christ, uh, Methodist Christians started universities, started uh, schools. Uh, Sunday school was started to educate uh, children who were laboring six days a week. And so the only day to teach them to read was on Sunday. So they started a Sunday school, started homes for unwed mothers, orphanages, uh, all sorts of things. Later hospitals were started as acts of creativity. And, and, uh, and so it reminds me of a conversation a few years ago uh, when the late uh, Gregory Dees was alive, who's sort of known as the modern, uh, the father of modern social entrepreneurship, which is just a fancy way of starting nonprofits to try to alleviate pain in the world. Um, uh, he's talking to the dean of a seminary and he said, basically, I want to ask you this question. What happened to the church? He said, you know, years ago, churches were starting orphanages and they were starting places to feed the hungry and they were starting hospitals and they were doing all this. And he said, I wouldn't have a job. I wouldn't be able to teach any classes to the nonprofit private sector if the church hadn't gotten out of the way. What happened to you? I mean, think about it here in our own city. Baptist health system, Methodist health system, Santa Rosa health system. Friends, that's all when the church decided to create, to get on the solution side of things. And somehow, in recent years, whether it goes back to the 70s or disillusionment, maybe in the 60s, the church got out of seeing themselves as active partners with God in creating things that would make the world a better place. Now, here's my theory this morning as to what one thing that might have happened. I think we forgot our image. I think we forgot our image because we're in the image of God as a creator. So the beautiful thing about baptism is baptism and baptism renewal helps remind us of our image. The early church remembered that the world was created when water uh, was separated and the earth was formed and the Holy Spirit hovered over this first act of creation. So what they taught in baptism that when you are baptized through the water and the Holy Spirit, a new creation is made. And when you think about it, uh, the problems that keep me from being as creative as I ought to be are in many ways and the objections I have solved in baptism. So, for example, I could uh, uh, come to the water and say, uh, well, you know, I would create, but I, I haven't always been perfect. You know, I've had kind of a checkered past. I'm probably not qualified. And I'm so glad I mentioned that at the 930 service because somebody I went to high school with was there. So 
you know, there you go. Uh, but baptism answers that. Baptism says, what do you think this water does? It cleanses. It cleanses not only sins that are past, but sins that are committed. There's a cleansing in Christ. Now, you don't have to be completely pure. You are washed. The second thing is sometimes I don't do what I could do creatively because, frankly, I'm afraid. What if it doesn't work? What if I fail? What if I, like, lose my job over this? What if I die? And the church baptizes you with water on top of your head to remind you that when you are baptized, you've drowned. You are dead man and dead woman walking because you have died with Christ and your fate now is sealed. They cannot kill you again. You and your eternity is set. What is there to fear? And so baptism speaks to my deepest fear. And then finally, sometimes I just say to God, well, you know what? Who am I? I'm, I'm nobody. So when we started the quarry three years ago, one of the things I, I thought was, you, you know, it's just adult Bible study. Who would even care? Why would anyone want to join us, much less give some sort of uh, award or certificate because they study? And I could think of all the things that I'm not. And then baptism answers that and says, when you are baptized, you are marked just as the two children today as a beloved son or daughter of God. Who are you? You are somebody important. You are royalty. And so baptism, I think, helps us renew our image. And then in that image, we join God and what God's doing. This is what Paul said we were made for. We are God's handiwork. Another translation says we're God's masterpiece. But here's the weird thing about God's masterpiece. God doesn't just put it on the refrigerator and stay there. God wants God's masterpieces to create masterpieces. It's an amazing, holy pyramid scheme. Only it's not really a scheme. God says, I made you creators. Now go out and create because that's who I am and that's who you are. And what's the purpose of this anyway? Is it just so the world to be finally, as Jesus said, renewed in all things? That's one of them. But isn't it more just what happens when we work with God and each other in this business of creativity and how our relationships are grown? I thought about this the other day. Uh, my uh, wife and uh, my, uh, my late father-in-law, her father, uh, got together and, and did a project at the back of our house and added a back porch. And, and it's a nifty back porch. It provides uh, some uh, uh, line of protection from the mosquitoes because they hit the screen and don't get any further. It's another line of defense for anybody that would want to chase my cat through the doggy door in the house. I mean, you know, there are really good things about it. it it's some shade and we put some chairs, can put some chairs out there. But she was talking one day. She said, you know, when we sell the house, I'm not really sure this porch adds any value. We'll probably have to take it down first. And I thought about it and I said, well, you know, to myself, that might be so. But the purpose was never to add value to our house. The purpose was so a father and a daughter could join together in the creative process. That was the big deal. No matter how perfect it looked, how long it would last, it was that they were together. And I would just tell you today that the father still looks for daughters and sons who want to spend time together in creativity.